Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. Today we are continuing right along in our series called The Jesus-Centered Life. And the whole idea behind the series, we said week after week, is that I think there's a lot of people uh, for whom Jesus is a, an important part of their life, but the reality is that's all he is. He's just a part of their life. In fact, I think for many of us, it's easy to treat our life as like this, this bowl of food and we're just going to sprinkle a little Jesus on top, add a little seasoning, you know, maybe, maybe get to go to heaven when I die, but essentially our lives are otherwise the same. And the reality is Jesus doesn't want to be an add-on to your life. He wants to be the central focus point of your life. And that's what this series is all about. In fact, I um, have been doing this thought experiment every so often over the years, and I'd encourage you to do this as well. Um, if we woke up tomorrow and we decided we're done following Jesus, where we're just, we're over the Jesus thing, we're not going to follow him anymore, how would your life fundamentally change? I mean, other than the fact that maybe next Sunday, instead of sitting here, you'd be having brunch or still in your bed, but like, how would your life fundamentally change? Would you approach your finances any differently? Would you approach the way you parent differently? Would you approach your marriage differently? Would you approach that boss that gets on your nerves any differently? And if the answer is no, I just want to lovingly suggest that perhaps you're not actually following Jesus. Now, I know it sounds harsh. I don't mean that you don't love Jesus, but if we're going to follow him, he's got to bring about an entire change in our life. We talked about last week, the whole world is forming us into something. Like you are growing into something. The question is not, are you being formed? But by what are you being formed? In fact, I was doing some research this week, and um, I was trying to figure out how many ads the average American sees every day. Now, if you just Google this, the first number you're going to get is somewhere between four and 10,000. But if you crunch the numbers on 10,000 ads a day, I mean, that's like, like five every second, okay? And I think that might be a little exaggerated. So then there's people who try to do these uh, experiments to see, all right, how many am I actually going to count? They'll count like 94. I also think like that's way too low because I don't know, anybody ever go like look up a recipe online and you like click the link and you get like somebody's whole life story and then there's like 27 banner ads and then finally you get to the recipe. And if it's not banner ads, I mean, think about like how frustrating is it every time you want to pull up a YouTube video, you got to watch like, you got to skip the ad. Like my kids figured out a way to skip the ad without actually skipping the ad. And, and then on top of that, you open up social media and it could be a celebrity influencer or it could just be your friends and family telling you, here's a trip I went on or the car I just bought. And all of this stuff is shaping our expectations for what success is in life, who we should be, what our goals ought to be. The reality is we are being shaped into something, but if we're going to follow Jesus and he is the central focus of our life, I call me crazy. I just think we probably ought to be shaped to become more like Jesus. Jesus. So the whole point of this series is what does it look like when he is the center of our life? And we've been talking about five markers of a Jesus-centered life. And again, I try to give this um, kind of caveat every week. This is five that I feel like for our church community in our area and our context is important for us. But this is not like, you know, thus saith the Lord, here's the five markers of a Jesus-centered life. But the ones we've talked about, for example, uh, the first week we said a Jesus-centered life is one that consistently practices spiritual disciplines. So that's things like fasting, prayer, confession, silence, and solitude. Those are all the things that, like, if the world is forming us all over here, then we're actually going to institute these practices so it actually forms and shapes us to be more like Jesus. Let's drown out some of this noise and tune into him. Last week, we talked about the importance of belonging to a Jesus-following community. And what we don't mean is, like, you need more Christian friends. 
listen, I'm all for Christian friends, but what we actually need is people in our life who have refrigerator rights. You know what that means? They can walk into your house, open your fridge, and take food, and you're not going to yell at them for doing so. Or what about this? We have people who are willing to call us out and say, hey, I don't think the way you've been treating your spouse over the last few weeks is really honoring to them. Or how about this one? Somebody's like, hey, why don't we sit down together and, and do our family budgets together? I mean, listen, you can talk about a lot of stuff. You start opening your finances up to somebody, that's like real community. That's real intimacy right there. And I'm not saying that should be everybody. But do you think everybody ought to have one, two, three, five people in their life that are close enough to challenge them? Because if we need an accountability partner to get to the gym, we sure as heck need somebody to be accountable to help us become more like Jesus, right? That's a lot harder than just showing up at the gym a few days a week. So up to this point, though, we've talked about things that are not easy, all right, it's not easy to fast. It's not easy to carve out time for scripture, but it makes sense, right? Like on some level, it makes sense that we need those practices to form us like Jesus. You know, it's not easy to find the, the, the three, four, five people that are close enough to open our lives up to, but it, it makes sense, right? It makes sense that we would need those people. Today is going to be a difficult message for me to present because what I'm going to talk about is neither easy nor does it make sense, and I think the reason it doesn't make sense is because so many of us, myself included, have had our imagination so formed by the world that this one actually seems like there's no way that could possibly be true. So here's what I want to do. I'm anticipating questions. If you're new to Bridgepoint, we do Q&A every week. Even in the first service, we had a lot of questions, which is great. I love it. So I want to introduce this third marker of a Jesus-centered life. I want to spend about 10 to 15 minutes unpacking some theology 10 to 15 minutes talking about how this practically applies, and then 10 to 15 minutes for Q&A. And some of you are doing the math. We're not going to be here for an hour, I promise. Like, we'll go shorter on some of the other ones, and we'll leave some time for the other. But the reason is because I think a lot of you are going to have questions on practical applications, but I really think, like, a disservice is if I just come up here and monologue for 35 minutes, and then you leave here confused, like, we wasted our time. So I'm not asking you to necessarily buy everything I'm saying, I am hoping that I can communicate clearly. Sound good? All right, so again, feel free to text in questions. You can raise your hand at the end of service for questions. We're going to set all that for the end. But to begin with, I want to tell you this third marker of a Jesus-centered life is one that overcomes evil with suffering love. All right, it overcomes evil with suffering love. And the reason I think this is so countercultural is because we think the way to overcome evil is we've just got to get the right people in places of power. You know, if somebody hurts us, we've got to hit them back. And yet we follow a Jesus who says things like, if somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other. If a Roman soldier forces you to carry their stuff from one mile, go two miles with them. If somebody sues you for your shirt, give them your coat as well. And instantly we read that, and all of a sudden, at least if you're like me, I'm thinking, okay, Jesus, but what about this? What about that? Like, we're trying to come up with the loophole instead of realizing that Jesus himself, what was his approach to overcome evil? Did Jesus try to overthrow the Roman Empire? Did he try to get the corrupt religious leaders out of power? Or instead, did he commit to, to uh, suffering love? And by the way, when we talk about love, that's not like an ooey-gooey feeling. In the English language, we use that word love to mean many different things. Like, I love football. I love my wife. I love Mexican food. But I don't mean the same thing when I say those words. When the Bible talks about love, the, the most common word is agape, which is a self-sacrificial commitment for what is better for someone else. 
So here's what I mean. When I got up in front of friends and family to marry my wife, I was making commitment to love her every day for the rest of my life. Now, there are days where we have a lot of feelings of affection towards one another. And there are some days where she probably wakes up and says, I can't believe I'm next to this guy right here. Like, the feelings come and go. But what real love is, is we have committed to one another that we will seek what is best for our spouse, even at the expense of our own wants and desires. That is what love is. That's the kind of love we're talking about. Jesus was so committed to us that he was willing to endure the cross. And if we're going to follow him, that ought to be the pattern of our life as well. So now what I want to do is I want to unpack some theology. And when I start this, this is going to weird some of you out. And that's, it's okay to be weirded out this morning. Some of you are not going to buy it, and that's totally fine. I'm not up here to say, hey, you better believe this or get out of here. There's good and godly people disagree. But I want to show you why I think the Bible says that this is the only way to overcome evil is with suffering love. So to start, I want to visit a verse we talked about last week in Genesis chapter 1. Now, I don't have time to recap last week's message. So if you missed that one, go on Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, whatever. Wherever we get your podcasts, you go listen to that one. But I want to read Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the ground. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now, if you're an astute Bible reader, you get to verse 26, and you read that verse where God says, let us make man in our image. Let's make him in our likeness. And if you've never been to church before, you never read the Bible before, you're thinking, okay, that seems weird because then it says God created him in his image. So we've got like different pronouns going on here. Is it plural? Is it singular? What's up with that? Now, if you grew up in church, what you were probably taught is, well, this is a reference to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but I want us to bear in mind that the book of Genesis, it was written for us, but it was not written to us. Okay, this was an ancient Near Eastern document written by an ancient Near Eastern author to an ancient Near Eastern audience. So, for example, when Jewish people, who, by the way, they don't believe in the Trinity because of the whole son thing. So if they don't believe in that, how would a Jew, an ancient Near Eastern Jewish person have read our image and our likeness? So this is a story in Genesis about how God created Adam and Eve to be his images. Not that they would look like him, but they would act like him. They would reflect his will in the world. So they're supposed to rule over the earth, subdue it, bring heaven to earth, order from chaos. That's all from last week. But at the same time, he has kind of given uh, some authority to these humans. What the Jewish people believed is that there was also a divine council of spiritual beings that God would consult with, and he would empower them to help humanity bring heaven to earth. All right, so I know that's kind of out there for some people, so let's flip over to Psalm 82. I'm going to read this entire psalm. It's short, so don't panic. I want to read the whole psalm. And with this idea of a divine council or a divine assembly in mind, I want you to listen to what it's saying. Psalm 82. God stands in the divine assembly. He pronounces judgment among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and needy. Save them from the power of the wicked. 
They do not know or understand. They wander in the darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the most high. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. Rise up, God, judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. So notice at the very beginning there, it says God stands before his divine assembly, his divine council, and pronounces judgment among the gods. Now a question here, isn't Judaism a monotheistic faith? So we have God who has a council of other gods. What's going on here? Well, the word for gods here is the Hebrew word Elohim. And the word Elohim, probably, I would translate it as spiritual beings. It's a category of spiritual beings that refers to this whole divine council, but also to God himself. So, so Elohim is a category, but sometimes it's used as a name. For example, we do this in the English language. Any woman who has a child is all of a sudden a mom. But when my kids say mom, they are referring to one specific mom, their mom. So the Bible will talk about Elohim, but then there is one Elohim that is above all the others. In fact, he's referred to in this passage as the most high. Throughout scripture, it will say there is no Elohim besides Yahweh, or there is no other God that can compare to Yahweh. He is the most high of all Elohim. And in this passage, God is judging them because they were supposed to be ruling over the world, assisting humans, bringing justice, and instead they were showing partiality to the wicked. And so God says, guess what? You're going to die just like the humans. You should work for justice. You should care for the fatherless and the widow and the orphan. These are the things you should have been doing, and instead you have been corrupted. To this whole divine council, and we don't have time to get there. I had like four hours of material I cut out for today, so I'm just, just go with me. Look, if you're taking notes, jot down in the book of Job. You see this. The accuser comes in to God and his whole divine council there. They have this whole conversation, like this is all over. In fact, another scripture I want us to look at is Psalm chapter 8, starting in verse 3. The psalmist says, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? You made him little less than God. Some of your translations there will say the angels. The word here is Elohim. You made him a little less than Elohim and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. And it goes on to describe all the things that were placed under his feet. And what we're getting here is this picture, all right? Like in, in God's org chart here, you have God as the supreme authority and ruler over all creation. Under him, he has created um, humanity to be his images to bring heaven to earth. And he has also created Elohim that will work in the spiritual realm, assist humanity to also bring heaven to earth. I don't love the middle management kind of analogy because that kind of comes with like some weird connotations, but just that God has delegated authority to both the humans and these spiritual beings. I'm not asking if you buy it, but at least are we on the same page? Are you tracking with what I'm communicating? Okay, that's important because when we read the story of Genesis, and I'm going to assume if you're here, most of you are familiar with the story. Two trees, all that jazz. 
Eve has a conversation with a talking snake. All right, now I don't know about you. If I see a talking snake, I'm burning the house down. We're not I'm just done. I'm over it. She doesn't seem phased, but I don't know about you. Sometimes it bothers me like people, if you want to talk to people who don't, you know, believe in God or they, they're not really into the whole scripture thing. And it's like, can we get past the first few pages before talking animals? Like, like I'm trying my best here, God. Like, well, what's going on? Which it sounds strange until you realize that um, in the Old Testament, when it describes this divine council, there's different creatures like cherubim that it will describe. Some of them are called seraphim, which in Hebrew means fiery serpent. And these serpents are depicted as having wings and being in the court of the Most High, singing praise and worshiping him. So if Eden really is the place where heaven and earth overlap, then wouldn't it make sense that God's images, humanity, would also be there with some of these spiritual beings, all right? To me, that, that is plausible. And if that is the case, and Eve sees this fiery winged serpent who she's seen leading worship to God before, I could put my trust in him. So, so part of the, the story of Eden is, who are you going to put your trust in? Will you trust what God says, or will you trust somebody else, no matter how trustworthy they may appear? And of course, Adam and Eve, they eat from the fruit. And, and what is the punishment for this serpent? Well, he has to crawl on his belly. Now, if the serpent was just a snake from the beginning, I don't understand how that's really much of a punishment. That's just how you normally live life. But if it was a winged serpent that would fly here and there to crawl around on your belly would seem like a pretty severe punishment. And so the story of Genesis is not just the story of the fall of humanity, but there's also a spiritual fall as well. There's spiritual beings in rebellion. In fact, if we skip forward a few chapters, Genesis chapter 6, it says the sons of God saw the daughters of man and thought they were attractive. And so they, they left the heavenly realm, slept with these women who gave birth to these um, giant demigods called Nephilim. Now, if you go on YouTube and you type in Nephilim, and I am not encouraging this, by the way, but you're about two clicks away from shape-shifting lizards in the Illuminati, okay? Like, there's a lot of theories about who are the Nephilim, what's going on here. Again, it seems strange until you understand the context that in the ancient Near East, every nation believed that either the king was a demigod, so Egypt, Pharaoh thought he was the son of God, or they received their ruling power from a demigod. What the author is communicating is that all nations are being influenced by spiritual beings that are in rebellion to God. So from the beginning, these spiritual beings that have rebelled against God have been working to influence humanity to rather than bringing heaven to earth are trying to throw the whole thing into chaos. In fact, if you skip to Genesis chapter 11, again, if you're taking notes, write this stuff down. I don't want you to take my word for it. Genesis chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. So all of these human leaders are trying to build this tower, which actually a lot of scholars think is described more as like a temple to their own merits and achievements. And so God uh, sees this and he scatters their languages. So we call it the Tower of Babel. It actually is the beginnings of Babylon, which side note, footnote here for the message, Babylon becomes the representative of every evil image empire. All right, so that's what's going on in the earthly realm. But in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, Moses looks back and said, when God scattered them, he scattered them according to the number of Elohim that were influencing them. It will say sons of God or something in there. And so from the beginning, we're getting this picture painted that every nation is being led by and influenced by these uh, fallen spiritual forces. So think about in the Old Testament, 
The Jewish people are living in captivity under Pharaoh. We did a series on the life of Moses. And one of the first plagues, when God's ready to free them, they go to the Nile. The Nile turns to blood. There, there are some scholars who suggest that this is representative of God killing the God of the Nile and turning the water to blood. Like God is going to battle with the gods that are giving Pharaoh his power. And it turns out it's actually no contest. So the Israelites are actually freed from Egypt. They become their own nation. And they're told, listen, don't worship any other gods. Don't worship these fallen spiritual beings. Worship only me. Don't make images for yourselves of these other gods. By the way, you know why they weren't supposed to have images? And the Jewish temple was one of the only, actually I believe the only temple in the ancient Near East that did not have images of God inside the temple. It's because who are the images of God? It is us. It was the priests were the image of God inside the temple. Don't make any graven images. Now when you realize all of this, if you're reading through the Bible, you're probably like working your way towards the end of Exodus right now if you're doing a year-long thing. So when you know Moses is up on the mountain and he's having this encounter with God and he comes back down to find that God's people have made an image of a calf, they're cheating on God. They're worshiping fallen spiritual beings during the wedding ceremony to God. Like you understand, that's why he's like, I'm ready to destroy them all. Like understandable emotion there. And so all throughout the Old Testament, we see the Jewish people repeatedly falling into the trap of worshiping these fallen spiritual beings. This breaks God's heart. And finally, he says, listen, I'm not going to force you into a relationship with me. If you want to worship these other gods, fine. He removes himself from the equation. And so then you get the enemies come in and conquer them. The Jewish people find themselves right where they were in Exodus, being ruled by a foreign leader who's gaining powers by a fallen spiritual force. And the question is, are these forces just running the show down here now? So when Jesus hits the scene, what are the things that he does? He casts out demons who have been oppressing people. He's healing people who are sick. He is raising people from the dead. He's directly confronting these fallen spiritual forces. In fact, what was one of Jesus' own temptations? The accuser said, listen, if you bow down and worship me, I can give you the nations because I'm in command of all of the spiritual beings who are over these nations. And Jesus is tempted to take the easy way to get what he's come to do. And instead, he passes that test. He goes on. And ultimately, his ministry culminates on the cross, where the New Testament authors say it was on the cross that Jesus made a mockery of all the powers and principalities, because all those spiritual forces thought they had overcome Jesus. They had put him to death. But three days later, he rose again. And then for everyone who follows him, we are promised that we become a new creation. We can become set free from the powers of sin and death and these fallen spiritual forces. All right? That's a lot of theology that I tried to unpack really quick. Again, I'm not asking you to buy that. I'm just asking you to track with me. Because if all of that is true, it has extreme ramifications for how we attempt to overcome evil in the world. The, the first one is this. If we're, if we're going to like practically apply this in our lives, the first thing we have to do is see other people as being made in the image of God. We have to see other people as images of God. This is so important. Because when people wound us, when they hurt us, when we feel like there's people in power passing unjust laws, we are tempted to look at them as like the embodiment of evil. When in reality, if everything we just said is true, they are not evil. 
they're being influenced by evil forces. Does that absolve them of the consequences of their actions? Absolutely not. But it should give us compassion to know that that person is never our enemy. There's an enemy behind that person who is our real enemy. Probably the best analogy I could come up with this week. I was like, let's say I wake up in the middle of the night and I hear this rustling downstairs. And so I jump out of bed, right? I'm the man of the house. I've got to defend my family. And I see somebody like ruffling through my wife's purse and pulling out money. If I run up and I grab them and turn it around and all of a sudden it's one of my sons and he's stealing from, from my wife and I'm wondering what's going on. And, and through conversation, I realize that he's got a drug addiction and he's trying to, to kind of feed that addiction in that moment my heart is not, in the moment, he's not some stranger I'm going to pull a gun on and shoot because they were stealing from me. In that moment, I have compassion because this is my son who's obviously being controlled by this addiction, this force, and it's leading him to do harmful things to himself and to others. Does that absolve him from his actions? Absolutely not. And out of love, will I hold him to account for the things he's done? Absolutely. But out of love, will I not also try to help him get the freedom that he needs? I would say absolutely to that as well. And so when we see other people as made in the image of God, but held captive to ideologies and spiritual forces and power, it makes us start from a place of compassion. The way Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heaven. See, the person who's wounding you, is likely someone who has wounded themselves and has been taught that the way that you deal with this is you lash out at somebody else. See, this is actually like this mind-blowing revelation when you start to wrap your mind around it. Like, think about the people who've hurt you. It was the spouse who left you. It was the boss who always had it out for you. It was that friend who stabbed you in the back. It was your child who said things that you never possibly could imagine them saying. It was a parent who spoke words of death over your life, and it wounded you, and even the mention of their name brings up bitterness in your life, and when you realize that Jesus died for them the same way he died for you, that Jesus loved them the same that he loves you, then that has to change our heart from a place of bitterness to a place of compassion. And only when we see other people as images of God, then we can take the second step where we respond out of God's kingdom instead of the kingdom of the world. In fact, if you read the very next verse, I think we had Ephesians 6, 13. So remember, our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And it's for this reason that you're to take up the full armor of God. So you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. So he says, all right, because our battle's not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities, put on the armor of God. And he goes on in the subsequent verses and talks about, you know, we've got to arm ourselves with truth and with readiness for the gospel of peace and with faith and, and salvation. And the only weapon we get is the spirit, which illuminates the word of truth to us. Like the weapon we get is not lashing out at other people, but allowing the word of God to shape and change us to see other people the way he's created us to. See, we have, to, we have a choice to make. Will we respond like the world responds, or will we respond out of God's kingdom instead? Will we fight fire with fire, or will we follow the life of Jesus, who even though he was God, didn't consider that something that he could manipulate for his own advantage? He laid that down and emptied himself 
becoming humble and obedient even to the point of death on the cross. That's what we're called to do. In fact, I was thinking, what, how does the kingdom of the world operate? I mean, that's, we could come up with an exhaustive list. I have a handful of things. First, I think the kingdom of God operates with power over other people. I think we have this list up here. Power over other people. So, right, if I can just exercise my power and control over them, if we can get the right people over other people, like that's how we're going to accomplish. It, it uses violence, right, like, or the threat of violence to maintain order and control. It's marked by manipulation. Let's manipulate people. I always joke, like, you know, the, the commercial with the dogs that are sick and they put the manipulative music in the background and you're weeping and don't know why. Like, that's a method from the world. I think also we have anger. I think the world is like a very angry place. And so a lot of times people are acting out of their anger. So if that's the way the kingdom of the world works, how does God's kingdom work? Well, instead of power over, it's power under people. Listen, not, not how can I gain advantage over you, but how could I lay every advantage down so I could find ways to serve you, to be humble, to care for you? It's not violence, but nonviolence. And, and, and listen, for the first several centuries of Christian history, it was the majority consensus that the way of Jesus was a nonviolent way. Of course, I know that leads to a ton of questions. We're going to dive into that even more in our next series where we walk through the Sermon on the Mount. We don't return fire with fire. We find other creative ways to resist the powers and authorities. It's not through manipulation, but it's through service. How can we care for people? Of course, not through anger, but through love. And again, not ooey-gooey, mushy love, but like I'm making a commitment to what's better for somebody else, even if it costs me something. Our individual rights and liberties are something that Scripture constantly tells us, don't necessarily fight for them, but lay them down to serve the people around you. That's the kingdom of God. Now, I know it's like drinking from a fire hose. I know some of you are still stuck on something I said 20 minutes ago, and that's understandable. But I do want to open it up for Q&A. I don't think we got any texting questions. But if you have a question and you want to raise your hand, we're going to call it Q&R because it's more of a response than an answer. And uh, remember, we want it to be a quick question. want it to be clear. and want it to be relevant to what we talked about today. So if you ask me about something we talked about last week, we can chat in the lobby about that. But quick, clear, and current to what we're talking about today. Anybody got questions? All right. Uh, when the sons of God come, why they would go against God? So the question, I have to repeat it again for our podcast audience, otherwise they won't hear the question. Why did the sons of God rebel against God? Um, I think it's the same reason that we rebel, is that they want to be masters of their own domain. They want to image themselves and their will and authority into the world. Um, it's actually, I think C.S. Lewis said, pride is the anti-God state of mind because it was, pride, it was through pride that the devil fell. And I always find that helpful to me because... I think when we center our lives on ourselves and our will and our desire, we're falling into the same trap as the enemy and every other son of God that fell. And there's other, like you can read all throughout the Old Testament, there's different times where more people, more people fall and more spiritual beings fall. I think every time it's come from a root of pride in their life. At least that's my thoughts on it. Great question, though. Anybody else have a question? Yes, no, maybe going once. I can't believe you're going to let first service be you in the number of questions. All right. That's, no, that's fine. All right. So the last, no, do we have one? All right. Uh, 
okay, so that's another thing. In Genesis, we have the watchers. It's also talked about in Enoch. They could be a, an Elohim, yes. They could be that. It's a spiritual being. Some of them are fallen. Um, here's what I will say. I want to give you a good resource, all right? And I did this in the first service because somebody asked. I want to give you a resource. If you're taking notes, it's a book called Unseen Realm, R-E-A-L-M. It's written by a guy named Michael Heiser. And listen, again, when I give, I give recommendations all the time. And understand, when I give recommendations, I've, I don't want to give the caveat. I don't agree with everything. It's like, okay, but his stuff on this spiritual being stuff, he, that book is very popular level, easy to understand. It's big, okay? Like, you're not going to finish it in one sitting. But he wa- he'll walk through Psalm 82. He'll walk through passages in Genesis. He walks through all of Scripture and shows this. And his work, I think, is some of the most accessible to people who are just, you're just like, listen, I don't want a theology degree to understand understand this stuff. Like, I mean, he really does put it on a plate for you. He talks about it, answers a lot of those questions. Uh, another resource, I give this one all the time, thebibleproject.com. They have tons of videos. They have a whole series. All their videos are five to six minutes. They're animated. Um, they're for adults, even though they're animated, because studies have shown that when you hear something, but you're also seeing it illustrated out, your brain retains it more. And they do a whole, I think it's like six or seven eight-part series on different kinds of spiritual beings, angels, demons, all that stuff. Great resource as well. And that one, you know, won't take you a month to read. You can probably get through it in about 30 minutes or so. So those are some great resources I want to point you to. Um, So we've talked about the fact that, you know, listen, we have to see other people as the image of God. I want to make sure we're responding out of God's kingdom instead of the kingdom of the world. With all of this being said, and I want to say this for an important reason, we have to trust God to accomplish his will his way. All right, so we want to trust God to accomplish his will, his way. Because I know this is shocking to you. We're in an election year and you're going to be tempted to think that we're going to bring the kingdom of God by using all the ways of the kingdom of the world. And if we can just get the right people to exercise power over, and we can just get those people out of office, if we could just do this, that, and the other, then finally heaven will come to earth. If scripture is true, and every nation besides the Jesus nation is being influenced by fallen spiritual forces, then left wing or right wing, it's the same bird. And I'm not saying that one, that they're both the same. Like, I I think there's definitely some clear differences. But here's what I'm saying. We're not bringing heaven to earth because we voted the right people in office. The most important thing you do to further God's kingdom will not be in a voting booth. It will be, how are you going to treat the people around you tomorrow? How will you treat the people who have hurt you and wounded you? When you are confronting evil in this world, homelessness, hunger, poverty, when we go to war with those, those things, the powers and the principalities, that's how heaven comes to earth. And the reality is it will not be done by you and me. The picture we get in Revelation at the, the end of time when Jesus comes back to bring his kingdom in full. Uh, we talked about this passage so much, one of my favorite, because on one hand you have all the fallen spiritual forces and then you have Jesus on the white horse and it's all of his followers behind him. And it's like, you know, it's like the, the Avengers Endgame and everybody shows up and, and all of a sudden Jesus just speaks and the battle's over before it begins. It wasn't anything that anybody did It was only what Jesus could do by his word that he speaks. And and I think that's so important because we're going to be tempted to think that people who are Republican or Democrat 
people who vote differently than us, look differently than us, believe differently than us, are somehow less than or evil or whatever else. But if we're following Jesus, listen, we live in, in an amazing country that allows us to speak a voice into a system, into a fallen system. And so if you, if you want to use that voice, that's great. But also understand that our first allegiance and only allegiance should be to the Jesus nation and following his kingdom rather than the kingdom of the world. And his kingdom only comes through him and when we practice his way. So what I want to do is continue in worship like we do every week with a time of communion. We have our four communion stations around. We also have our prayer stations open up front. You can write a prayer to God and just put that in the prayer jar or light a candle because throughout church history, that's represented a prayer to God. I want to give you a couple minutes just to, to sit and to process, to pray, to meet with Jesus. As you're sitting there, maybe the, the question you need to ask Jesus today is, what are the ways of the world that are forming me more than Jesus right now? I know Jesus is confronting me with some things in my life that I'm trying to, to detox from so I can hear from him. Or maybe for you, it's, there's somebody who, again, their name just brings up all kinds of feelings. And maybe today it's just, Jesus, would you help me to love that person the way you do? But all across this room right now, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, we're so thankful that you've come to put an end to the reign of these spiritual fallen forces. So I pray in the meantime where we're living between your first coming and your second coming when we feel the effects of sin, death, and brokenness. I just pray right now for people in this room who need healing, who need comforting. People who've been living out of some kind of wound, hurt, pain, bitterness. I just pray you would meet them in this moment. I pray when we're tempted to fight fire with fire, we would trust your way over our way. I pray for every area in our life that's being shaped by something other than you, that in this moment you would convict us, we would surrender that. And I pray that you would open our eyes to see the ways that we can live out suffering love this week to those around us. Because at the end of the day, we just want to become more like you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.